The Complete Guide to Memory, written by Scott Young and Jakub Yilich, February 2019. How does your memory work? How can you remember more? Prevent forgetting. These questions lie at the heart of everything that you want to learn, do, or experience. Your memory impacts everything you do, from how well you'll do in school, your career, life, and even your sense of self and happiness. This is a topic that has long fascinated me, and I've written a lot about memory previously on the blog and talked about it a lot during this podcast. However, I wanted to create a guide that would combine and integrate everything we know scientifically about long-term memory and distill that knowledge into practical advice. To do that, I collaborated with Jakob Yulik, who has his Master's in Cognitive Science at the University College London and is currently studying for his PhD. In this complete guide, we will cover everything that you need to know about memory, how it works, and how you can improve it. So just a side note, this is quite a substantial podcast. You'll notice it's a lot longer than a lot of my other ones. There's over 10,000 words that I'm narrating here for the podcast. So feel free to save it and store it for later if you want to listen to it, as it's actually a little bit more like a small book than an actual uh, a podcast episode from an individual article. Why memory matters. What is memory? Well, the general consensus is that memory is a multitude of cognitive systems which allow us to store information for certain periods of time so that we can learn from our past experiences and predict the future. Memory impacts every facet of our lives. The first step to remembering things better is to understand how your memory works. There are two basic kinds of memory, retrospective and prospective. Whereas retrospective memory is about remembering what happened in the past, Prospective memory is about reminding yourself to do something in the future. Without prospective memory, you would not remember to go to work in the morning and you would forget to set your alarm clock in the evening. One way to divide up retrospective memory is into the kind of things it stores. A big difference here is between implicit and declarative memory. Implicit memory is essentially skill memory, the ability to do a task. If your implicit memory failed, you would not be able to brush your teeth, take a shower, drive your car, or ride a bicycle. This kind of memory shows up in our abilities, but we can't always articulate what it is we know in words and concepts. Declarative memory, in contrast, is either memory for facts and meaning, so semantic memory, or memory for events or experiences, episodic memory. Without semantic memory, you would not understand the content of what your colleagues or friends were saying. Without episodic memory, you'd struggle to recount your day later to someone else. Another way to examine memory is based on its duration. Working memory manipulates and stores information for short periods of time. Talking with your colleagues, discussing a point at a meeting, and planning your weekend would be entirely impossible without working memory. In contrast, long-term memory serves as a long-term storage of information. Almost all of our everyday activities depend on long-term memory, such as remembering our way home or how to drive a car. Here's a quick recap of the different types of memory. Retrospective memory, remembering the past, and it is divided by content into declarative, explicit memory. So you can also think of this explicit memory breaking down into semantic memory, memories of facts and meaning, or episodic memory, memory of experiences you've had. You can also break down retrospective memory into different durations. So working memory is what you can keep in mind at the same time to think, reason, and solve problems. And long-term memory, anything that you remember longer than a moment. So what you ate for breakfast this morning, exam questions, or your friend's birthday. 
Finally, we can contrast retrospective memory with prospective memory, reminding yourself to do something in the future. So in this particular guide, because of the huge amount of information there is on memory, we're going to focus mostly on declarative semantic memories. This covers most of the things you're trying to remember, like facts, dates, names, and ideas. The three parts underlying all of your memories. So what does a $10 bill look like? Or a common banknote if you're not American? Do you think you'd be able to draw one? Although we see coins and banknotes on a regular basis and therefore have virtually limitless opportunities to learn their shape, few people could sketch one accurately. Looking at something repetitively does not guarantee that we will remember it later. Why can't we draw a $10 bill, yet we could recognize it instantly if we saw one? To unravel this mystery, we need to break the act of remembering things into atomic parts. Those parts are, first, encoding, the process of putting information into your brain. Second, storage, the process of keeping the information in your brain. Third, retrieval, the process of getting the information out of your brain when you need it. Understanding these three functions is essential if you want to have better memory. Any attempt to improve your memory must either encode the information better or in a format you're more likely to retrieve, store the information better and longer, or retrieve it in the situation you need to. Let's look at all three and see how we might be able to improve our memories. Encoding, putting memories into the brain. Encoding is a process of imprinting information into the brain. Without proper encoding, there is nothing to store, and attempting to retrieve the memory later will fail. One way to improve encoding is simply to repeat information more times. Scientists who study memory call these repetitions rehearsals of the information. However, as the case with the banknote illustrates, many rehearsals do not always mean you'll successfully recall the information. What makes the difference between this case and the more familiar case of remembering, let's say, your phone number because you've had to use it a lot? When you were trying to memorize the phone number, you did not merely look at it repetitively. Instead, you deliberately tried to memorize it. You may have read it to yourself several times. Maybe you attempted to recall it from memory, checked whether you were right and corrected yourself accordingly. Perhaps you even noticed that there were some relationships between different numbers. Some of the numbers were multiples or sums of preceding numbers or following numbers. Maybe it corresponded to dates or birthdays that you know. In summary, you employed certain cognitive strategies and processes. You still needed repetition, but the repetition was effective only when you used it together with these strategies. Similarly, if you want to have an effective memory, the cognitive strategies you use will make a big difference on your ability to remember things later. So what kind of encoding strategies are most effective? Intention to learn. Does it matter how much you want to remember something? In an intriguing study, scientists asked students to study lists of words. One group was told explicitly to memorize the words, with a warning that there would be a test later. Whereas the other two groups were either asked to sort the words into categories, or simply arrange them into columns, unaware that there would be a test later. So one would expect that the students who deliberately studied the words would perform better than the categorizing and arranging groups who did not make such an effort. However, this was not the case. The categorizing and memorizing groups performed equally well in the test, whereas the arranging group performed worse than the other two. So why didn't students' intention to learn make much difference? In brief, the researchers found that the students who were told to memorize 
categorize the words in the same way as the students who were explicitly told to do so. By categorizing, the two groups effectively processed the words more deeply than the students who simply arranged them. As a result, they encoded the words more strongly than the arranging group and achieved better test results. So this experiment shows that the mere intention to learn something is not what makes you remember it later. What matters is what you do with the material, i.e. what specific strategies you use to process it rather than how much you want to have remembered it. So let's take a look at these strategies. Depth of processing. Why how you process information determines how much you'll remember later. Scientists believe that one of the critical factors for determining the success of encoding is depth of processing. The deeper you process the to-be-learnt information, the more likely it is to stick. So what exactly is deep processing? In essence, deep processing focuses on the meaning of the information. So try this demonstration. I'm going to list a following list of words for you. After you've listened to it, try to recall as many of the words as possible. So pause the podcast and try to re recall as many as I say. So these words are cabbage, table, river, shirt, gun, square, iron, dentist, sparrow, mountain, hand, and granite. So pause right now and try to remember it. So how many of the words did you remember? Now, I want you to try the same thing, but with a different list of words. Pink, green, blue, purple, apple, cherry, lemon, plum, lion, zebra, cow, rabbit. How many words did you remember this time? Try it once more with this list. Thread, pin, eye, sewing, sharp, point, prick, thimble, haystack, thorn, hurt, injection. How many words did you remember from that list? So it's quite likely that you remembered most of the items from the second and third lists and fewer items from the first list. As you may have noticed, the second list consists of items grouped into categories, color, fruit, and animal, whereas the third list contained items which are related to the word needle. In contrast, the first list simply consists of unrelated items. So the reason why it was easier to memorize items in the latter two lists is that the items were meaningfully connected. They were subjectively, consciously or unconsciously, organized into a specific category or related to a common concept. Giving meaning to information is beneficial as it harnesses the process of spreading activation. So I will cover more in the section on spreading activation coming soon. The main implication of this study is that structured information is much easier to encode to memory than disorganized information. Therefore, it is extremely useful to impose a good structure on your notes. The structure can take many different shapes, hierarchical, flow-based, mind mapping, or anything that you find particularly useful. What matters is that the particular technique helps you organize the study material in an easy, clear, and understandable way. Categorization and structuring are not the only ways that you can give meaning to information. Another powerful technique that substantially improves memorization is self-explanation. Self-explanation simply consists of asking yourself questions about the study material as you study. So, how does this concept relate to this other concept? What are the implications of this concept for something else I want to learn? Why does this make sense? 
what are the steps that I must take to solve this problem? A very effective way to make yourself process information deeply is to explain the study material in your own words. If you were to explain a concept using different words than those used by the textbook or the lecture, you first have to process and understand its meaning and logical connections with other concepts, which effectively boosts encoding by stimulating deeper processing. This stands in stark contrast with the situation where you simply reread the textbook or lecture notes, which constitutes only superficial processing and does not lead to effective encoding. When taking notes, make sure that you do not copy the words of your textbook or lecturer verbatim. Instead, try to use your own words as much as possible. Researchers have shown that typing notes on a computer encourages copying information verbatim, so even if a student are explicitly instructed to use their own words, they're likely to transcribe it word for word, unlike writing notes by hand. As a consequence, students who take notes on a computer often underperform in tests compared to students who use handwriting. So what are our general recommendations? Well, we recommend that you first take structured notes. So whatever suits you best, this could be hierarchical, flow-based, mind maps. Second, don't memorize a lecturer's or textbook's phrases. Explain concepts to yourself in your own words. Third, when taking notes, avoid copying information word for word. Instead, use your own phrasing. Fourth, avoid taking notes on a computer. Take handwritten notes instead. Transfer appropriate processing, the trick to acing your exams. Imagine yourself learning how to ride a bike. You could buy a 200 page long book on cycling and memorize everything perfectly. If you were to sit a written test, you would ace it. Now imagine instead that you're actually trying to ride your bike. What do you think would happen? Well, chances are that you would crash as soon as you got on your bike. Although you knew everything that you could about cycling, a key element was missing. The reason for this crash is that the cognitive processes used during encoding did not match, or in other words, transfer appropriately to, the processes needed during retrieval. To remember things effectively, the processes that you use during practice need to correspond with the processes during use. As an illustration, consider the following study. Researchers asked students to either read aloud a list of words so superficial processing, or to generate these words from their antonyms or their opposites, deep processing. The students were later asked which words they could remember, so a free recall exercise, or to fill in missing letters in words, so they're trying to complete a fragment of the word. One would expect that the superficially processing students would underperform in both tests, because deep processing is generally better than superficial processing. So, for that, you can recall the previous section. However, this was only the case for the free recall test. Surprisingly, in fragment completion, where you have to fill in letters of words, the superficial processing group was better than the deep processing group. So what would explain this surprising result? The reading group processed the words perceptually, while the generating group processed them semantically. So the first group saw what the words looked like, where the generating group thought about what the words meant. So they had to retrieve the memory words from a particular meaning. Whereas perceptual processing matched the processing needed by the perceptual task, semantic processing matched the process needed during recall. So note that words stored in semantic memory are based on their meaning, not how they're spelled or how they sound. 
So the main implication of this study is that although deep processing is extremely beneficial for memory, it may not be enough to fully optimize your test performance. To further improve your results, it is important that you practice with similar processing that will be required on the test. So think hard about how you will be tested on information you need to remember. Will it be multiple choice tests, essay questions, applied in real life problems? Then make your practice match the situation where you use it. Mismatch practice is a major cause of poor memories. They simply aren't encoded in a way that is useful. If your exam will consist of writing an essay, an excellent strategy is for you to do your readings with pre-reading questions. Pre-reading questions force you to look at the arguments and evidence in order to answer the questions, which are precisely the processes that you will need during your essay type exam. However, it turns out that transfer appropriate processing is only one consideration that matters for memory. This is because some encoding strategies are generally better than others, regardless of whether they match the test format or not. In fact, one specific encoding strategy dominates almost all others. This strategy is called recall and is discussed later. So in summary, if you're going to take a test of a particular format, such as an essay format, the best approach is to reap the benefits of multiple strategies. Whereas practicing with the final test format will teach you to process the material in a way that is required by the test, recall will lead to the most effective encoding. Therefore, ideally, you should spend about a quarter of the time practicing with the final test format, for instance, multiple choice questions, and spend about 75% or three quarters of the time practicing with recall combined with deep processing techniques. State dependence, how your physical or mental states drive your memory. So imagine the following scenario. You have to prepare for tomorrow's test, but your friend has a birthday party tonight. You decide to go to the party and end up having a few alcoholic drinks. When you come back home, you're actually quite drunk, but you study for the test anyways. The next morning, you go to school and sit the test. So here's the question. Would you be better off taking a shot or two of an alcoholic beverage before the test, or is it a better idea to refrain from drinking and remain sober for when you're taking the test? So setting aside from the fact that you would likely not be admitted to the school in a drunk state, science actually has an astonishing answer. In order to improve your performance, you should top up your alcohol to approximately the same level you had during revision. So this was actually demonstrated with a study. So what could explain the surprising result? Well, research has shown that our memories are state dependent. The more similar our mental, physical, and chemical states between encoding and retrieval, the more likely we are to successfully remember. Memory relies on a chemical process through which new connections, pathways, are formed and strengthened between neurons. If you study in a particular state, the memory trace is encoded with brain activity influenced by this state and becomes, to some degree, dependent on its reinstatement. So state dependence of memory has been found in all kinds of drugs and medications, including nicotine, caffeine, cannabis, Ritalin, or even antihistamines. So if you're on a medication such as Ritalin, it's therefore a good idea to keep the same dosage during both revision and testing. If you can't drink coffee or smoke cigarettes when you're taking a test, you'd better avoid these drugs during revision as well. Moreover, it's important to realize that the majority of drugs have well-known detrimental effects on memory, so especially alcohol and cannabis. So you stand your best chance of passing your test if you both revise and take the test while you're sober. That's obvious. 
State dependence of memory applies to other states as well. If you study in a good mood, you're likely to perform better in a test if you're also in a good mood when you're studying, and the same applies to other moods. Similarly, if you study while standing up and doing aerobic exercises, you're more likely to remember the material if you are also tested while standing up and doing aerobic exercises. One approach to overcome state dependence of memory is to try to study in the same state that you will be in during the exam. You could, for instance, revise sitting at a desk while simulating stressful feelings, for instance by timing your answers, assuming that these conditions will be the same during the exam. However, this isn't always possible. So an alternative approach is to study in various mental and physical states. The logic behind this is that you never know what kind of state you'll be in during your exam and therefore it's best to make your memory independent of any particular state. For example, you could revise both when you have a lot of energy and also when you're low on energy. Also, it's a good idea to study regardless of the mood you're currently in. So in summary, we recommend that you spend at least a quarter of your studying time simulating the state you'll likely be in during the exam. So sit at a desk, time your answers, feel that nervousness so that it will help you activate those memories. Second, study regardless of your mental or physical state. Study in different moods with different energy levels and this will increase your state dependent memory more so than if you only study when you're feeling particularly enthusiastic about it. Context dependence why your environment matters. So consider an everyday situation. You get up from your desk to have a cup of tea. Once you arrive in the kitchen, however, you forget what you wanted. However, when you get back to your desk, you suddenly remember. Scientists have discovered that memories are heavily context dependent. Context is essentially anything that is present during encoding, for instance, the environment that we're in. And our brains seem to encode for the context as part of the memory trace, as if taking a snapshot of everything that is around us at the moment of creating the memory. Successful retrieval of the memory trace then depends to some degree on reactivation of the context in which it was encoded. So in our example, the intention to have a cup of tea was encoded in the context of standing up from your desk, coming back to the kitchen reactivated the intention to have a cup of tea. So to combat context dependence, you can adopt the same approaches we used for overcoming state dependence. The first approach would be to emulate the environmental context of the test. For instance, you could revise in a quiet or noisy environment depending on where your exam will be situated. You may also consider revising together with a friend or two to get used to being distracted by other people fiddling around in the examination room. An even better idea would be to revise in the classroom where you will be taking the test. The second approach would be to revise in as many different contexts as possible. So studies have shown that students who revise in many different rooms prior to their tests perform better than those who study in one room only, with as much as a 30% improvement in test performance. Since the environmental context keeps changing, the information effectively becomes context independent. In other words, if you teach yourself how to retrieve the studied material in any kind of circumstance, this will be extremely useful given the fact that you often can't predict the exact circumstances you'll face during the exam. The context of study does not need to be only environmental. The particular questions and practice tests that you use will also become the context that is encoded during your study material. Therefore, the more questions you practice on for a given concept, the more neural connections the brain has to generate between different contexts and the target concept. The more roots the brain is built, the easier it is to retrieve the concept later. 
This is because retrieval becomes less dependent on a particular starting point, the type of question asked, or its particular wording. The impact of this context sensitivity is particularly important when creating flashcards. If the question side of your flashcard contains irrelevant information, or information that won't be present when you really need to remember, you may not be able to recall it when you need it. So consider the following flashcards. So one of the questions could be, how do you say again in Chinese, but only for actions that you'll repeat in the future, like asking someone to repeat to do something that they just said. And then on the answer, you have zai. Compare that to question, again, in brackets, future, answer, zai. So the former has so much more context that you may be memorizing the pairing only with this context, which may be missing when you need to think about the term. So for this reason, it's better to either ask yourself questions with as little context as possible, and thus maximum difficulty, or to ask many different questions with different contexts, so the same context isn't required for successful retrieval. So in summary, we recommend the following. First, for about half your study time, simulate the environmental conditions of your test, so in a noisy or quiet environment with similar distractions, people around. For the other half, try alternate rooms, places, and conditions as you study. Third, test yourself with different kinds of practice questions. So try asking yourself what questions, why questions, how questions, to give yourself less context dependence. Fourth, make use of minimal context when you create flashcards, or if possible, try different ways of asking yourself questions to maximize your flexibility. Storage, keeping memories in the brain. Once you've encoded information, now you need to store it. Unfortunately, forgetting is a major part of how our brains work. Most of us can't remember what we had for dinner Tuesday three weeks ago. However, we can all remember our first kiss. Forgetting can be caused by two different processes. The first is a failure of storage. The information might be forgotten simply because our brain loses it over time. The second is a failure of retrieval. The information might be in there, but we can't access it. Now, experimentally, it's very difficult to tell these two apart, but since they are separate processes, we'll consider each separately as we look at how memory works. The progression of forgetting was originally studied by the famous experimental psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus. Ebbinghaus discovered that forgetting follows an exponential decay function, whereas in the first hours after study, there is a rapid drop in the number of items successfully remembered, there's relatively little forgetting from the second day onward. Now, although the exact shape of the forgetting curve is likely individual and depends on many factors related to the study material, so for instance, how easy, difficult, interesting the material was or how well it was encoded, it approximates an exponential curve with rapid forgetting in the beginning and less forgetting in later periods of time. So why do we forget information in the first place? And what can we do to counteract the process of forgetting? Trace decay. Do your memories fade with time? The most basic explanation of forgetting has to do with the passage of time. Our memory traces are stored in living tissue, which inevitably changes over time. It is a well-known fact that connections between neurons deteriorate in time, and as a consequence, the memory traces stored within these connections decay. In addition, there's another possible cause for decay of our memories. Surprisingly, making new memories may be part of the reason we forget. As new memories are formed, new neurons are produced in the hippocampus, the memory hub, which changes its structure and the pattern of its connections. As a consequence, older memories may be more difficult to retrieve. 
Therefore, if you need to retain an old information in memory for a final exam, for instance, it would be a good idea to revise it again while you're studying something new. Otherwise, the old information might be superseded by the new information somewhat. So we recommend that you establish a schedule of revision of the old material, even a couple minutes every day should suffice, that is interspersed with a study of new material you're learning. This is especially important if you study several different subjects or topics within one day because your memory cannot yet benefit from the protective sleep-induced consolidation process. Now there's also another reason why studying new things can impair the retrieval of old things and we'll discuss it in the section on interference. So in summary, we recommend the following. Spend about one-tenth of your studying time revising old material. Second, insert brief periods of revision of old material into the study of new material. Consolidation and sleep. Let biology do the work for you. Learning does not finish with the end of studying. For a memory trace to become permanently established in our long-term storage systems, structural biological changes must take place in brain tissue. New connections between new neurons must be formed and firmly established. These changes are not immediate and they do take time. So in scientific terms, the mechanism through which recent memories become permanent memories is called consolidation. Although some consolidation occurs during wave So although some consolidation occurs during wakefulness, the primary time for consolidation is sleep. So have you ever studied an exam through the night? If so, did you perform as well as in other exams in which you enjoyed a full night of undisturbed sleep? Probably not. Unsurprisingly, researchers have found that sleep deprivation impairs memory consolidation and undermines learning. In fact, sleep deprivation, before or after learning, can worsen performance in a declarative memory test by as much as 20 to 50%. Moreover, prolonged sleep deprivation has permanently damaging effects on memory. On the other hand, you can use sleep as a powerful aid in between your studying sessions. You may have heard of power naps, the short periods of sleep used to refresh energy. There is now robust evidence to recommend naps. Napping during the day will protect memory from trace decay, so see the section on trace decay for that, and interference, which we'll talk about soon, due to sleep-induced consolidation processes. In other words, you will forget less of the subject study than if you stayed awake during the same amount of time. So if you decide to give napping a try, it's important to be aware of the different stages of sleep. Napping for the maximum of 20 minutes is effective for restoring your energy. However, it is not enough to reach deeper stages of sleep during which consolidation occurs. So in order to boost your memory, you need to sleep for at least an hour. However, napping for 60 minutes has a downside of leaving you in a groggy state for about half an hour afterward because you wake up in the middle of deep sleep. Therefore, it's often best to sleep for a full 90-minute cycle. After that, you will feel both refreshed and your memory will benefit from consolidation. Another good option that has been found to be effective is to schedule your studying session in the evening right before sleep. So in summary, we recommend the following. Take a 20-minute nap when you need to restore your energy. Take a 90-minute nap after a study session to consolidate that memory. And third, schedule your study sessions before sleep to reap the full benefits of consolidation. Interference. Does learning new things block old memories? So do you remember what you had for dinner two weeks ago? Now choose your favorite trip from a couple years ago. How much do you remember from that? Chances are you don't remember much about what you had for dinner, but you do remember something about your trip, although it took place much earlier before the meal. This example shows that forgetting is not simply memories decaying with time. Our memories crucially depend on cues, 
A cue is essentially anything, such as a physical object, situation, time period, word, question, concept, etc., which is paired with a memory trace and which must be activated for that memory trace to be retrieved. If we pair the same cues with multiple memory traces, then it will be difficult to retrieve one particular trace because once the cue is activated, the activation will spread to all paired memory traces at once and these will compete for entry into consciousness. So consider back to the example above in which you usually dine at the same place. Many different meals are going to be associated with that same cue, the dining environment. So therefore, it'll be hard to retrieve the specific meal that you enjoyed a week ago in contrast, you probably have not been on the same trip many times before, and therefore it's easier to remember its details because the context of the trip is not paired with other memories. The disruption of some memories by other memories which are paired to the same cues is called interference. You may have experienced interference if you ever studied a second language. Interference may have caused you to be unable to retrieve vocabulary in one language. Instead, vocabulary from the other language popped into your mind. In this case, interference did not necessarily cause a loss of memory, but the memory trace became blocked and thus temporarily inaccessible. Researchers found that the only way to overcome blocking interference is by making a conscious effort to recover the correct memory trace, and have patience because this may take some time. Interference, however, may also cause a permanent loss of memory. Scientists who study memory call this retrieval-induced forgetting. As a demonstration, consider the following experiment. Students studied 10 geographical facts about each of two islands, A and B. They subsequently practiced retrieving 5 out of 10 facts for island A. Afterward, their knowledge of these facts was tested. So what do you think happened to students' memory about island A? Well, unsurprisingly, retrieval practice boosted retention for the 5 facts that were practiced. So the percentage of correct answers was greater than for island B. However, it also worsened the memory for the five facts about island A that were not practiced, again, compared to island B. So what caused this effect? Well, island A serves as the contextual cue for information about island A, whereas island B serves as the contextual cue for information about island B. When the five facts about Island A were retrieved from memory, their connection with the context cue was strengthened and the connection of the remaining five facts was weakened. The main implication of this study for learning is that selective practice testing substantially boosts performance on the practice items, but it can also somewhat worsen the performance for the unpracticed items. So how can we combat forgetting caused by interference? Well, one way is that we can overcome interference by making it explicit. If there are concepts that you get frequently mixed up, put them side by side and restudy them at the same time. The general idea is that whenever you're studying, it's a good idea to make different concepts as distinctive as possible. This forces your brain to encode them in as dissimilar memory traces as you can. You can achieve this by stressing the differences between different concepts from your study material, by comparing and contrasting for instance. Another effective strategy is to integrate the concepts. For instance, if you are memorizing the members of a particular animal or plant family, then try to find all the possible relations between the members. When you're later retrieving these members, they will no longer compete for access to consciousness as they will be encoded closely together in an integrative manner. Instead of one concept blocking the other, they will all be retrieved simultaneously. Scientists have found that our study goals often impact how well we will overcome interference. 
Students who focus on comparative performance, how well they do compared to other students, tend to use superficial processing, so they don't look for relations among concepts. Whereas students who aim for mastery tend to use more deeper processing, such as establishing connections between these different concepts. So in summary, we recommend the following. First, restudy concepts that you typically confuse. So you, you should use compare and contrasting methods to find differences between them. And you should integrate concepts that are related to each other. Second, you should aim for mastery of a subject. Don't pay attention to what other people are doing and try to compete against them. The spacing effect. Study less, remember more. The spacing effect is undoubtedly one of the most important discoveries in the science of memory. The general idea of spacing is that to achieve the same performance at a given test, you need substantially less time overall to memorize something than if you spread your study into multiple sessions as opposed to if you study everything in a single session. As a demonstration, consider an experiment that the famous psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus performed on himself. Ebbinghaus studied two lists of words on two following days. On the first day, he spent one minute studying list A and seven and a half minutes studying list B. On a second day, he had to spend another 20 minutes on list A to memorize it perfectly. However, he only needed another seven and a half minutes to memorize list B. By spacing the sessions more equally for list A and B, Ebbinghaus managed to save himself about a quarter of the total time spent studying. In a similar way, if it takes you three hours in a row to prepare for a test, you may need less than two hours in total if you divide the time into two or three equally sized sessions spread across several days. In general, the more you spread your sessions, the less overall time you'll need. Scientists recommend that spacing distance should be about 10 to 20% of the test delay. If your test is in 10 days, you will benefit most from studying once a day. If your test is in six months, you should study every 20 days. Spacing not only substantially saves time, it also boosts long-term retention. Each study session that is followed by an immediate or delayed sleep provides another opportunity to consolidate the study material, as we covered in consolidation previously. Furthermore, spacing can give you more opportunities to associate the study material with more states and contexts, physical, mental, environmental, which makes it easier to retrieve in the future. So, for that, we can also refer to the state dependence and context memory dependence uh, parts of encoding. More importantly, spacing effectively reveals to your brain that forgetting is taking place, a crucial signal that is not available when you have crammed or massed practice. The signal of forgetting has been found to automatically encourage more effective encoding strategies in students. The spacing effect is a robust phenomenon in psychology and is extremely effective for a wide range of study materials, including foreign language vocabulary, math problems, spatial information. The key idea behind space repetition is that revision of a particular concept should be done right before the concept is about to be forgotten in order to achieve maximum time efficiency and length of retention. As there is no formula that could calculate this exactly, you need to experiment with yourself. For practical reasons, it's probably best to use a specialized software that uses a spacing algorithm. Although there is currently no comparison of the effectiveness of different space repetition algorithms, some popular choices include the software Anki, Quizlet, or SuperMemo. We recommend that you experiment with a program that is free on most platforms and explicitly states the algorithm used and allow you to tweak it. So our favorite pick is Anki. Bear in mind that the spacing effect does not continue indefinitely. 
For example, 10 one-minute sessions will not likely be better than one 10-minute session. This is because starting each learning session carries with it some cost. You have to start to focus, you have to load the material into your working memory, etc. For this reason, complex subjects may require longer studying sessions for learning to be effective. For instance, it may be better to have three one-hour sessions per week for your engineering class than six 30-minute sessions. It all depends on the subject being studied. So in summary, we recommend the following. First, avoid massed studying, i.e. many hours in one session. Two, divide your study sessions into smaller blocks spread out over longer periods of time. Third, the distance between study sessions should be at about 10 to 20% of the testing delay. For instance, for a test in 10 days, study once a day. Fourth, schedule your revision of each concept or topic to about the time that you would forget it. So this needs some self-experimentation as there's no formula to calculate this precisely. And fifth, consider using a flashcard program such as Anki, Quizlet, or SuperMemo. Retrieval, accessing memories in your brain. Retrieval is the mechanism of accessing information stored in memory. Successful retrieval of a memory trace hinges on its association with cues. A cue is anything that is connected to the memory trace, so it could be a physical object, situation, time period, word, question. Scientists believe that memories are retrieved through the process of spreading activation. Once a cue is activated in the brain, the activation spreads from the cue to the target memory. A single memory trace can be connected to an infinite number of cues. If none of the relevant cues is activated, the memory trace cannot be retrieved, even though it may well be stored in memory. As an example, try to remember the capitals of these countries. South Korea, Syria, Denmark, Colombia, Afghanistan, Thailand, Venezuela, Turkey. So when I said each of those countries, could you remember the capital city? Do you feel that you might know their names and may be able to remember them later? You may be experiencing the tip of the tongue phenomenon, where you know that you know something, but you still can't quite remember it. So now try these same exercises, but I will give a little bit of help, in particular the first letter of the capital city of each of these countries. So for South Korea, S. For Syria, D. For Denmark, C. For Colombia, B. For Afghanistan, K. For Thailand, B. For Venezuela, C. For Turkey, A. Did you remember them all now? You most likely remembered more of them. This is because the starting letter functions as a suitable cue that is connected to the capital's name. When the cue is provided, the memory trace storing the capital's name becomes automatically activated. How does the process of retrieval function and what are its implications for learning? What can we do to maximize our chances of successfully retrieving information? Spreading activation. Gain quick access to your memory. So imagine you're preparing for a test on all the capital cities in the world. Given a country, you have to state the capital. If you use the most basic learning strategy, you would simply learn to match each country with its corresponding capital. Alternatively, you would look at pictures taken from these capitals, maybe watch short videos of people speaking the country's language, visiting the capital sites, and so on. Which strategy would be more effective? The first strategy would be called shallow processing because you would not be giving the information any additional meaning. You'd be making only one connection between the cues, the countries, and the target memories, the cities. 
The second strategy would be called deep processing, as you would be drawing on many connections between the capital, the country, its people, its sites, and so on. If you adopted the second strategy, you'd be making use of the structure of your memory. Memory is believed to operate on this principle of spreading activation. If you encounter one concept, a country, the neural pathways representing this concept are activated in your brain. As a consequence, nearby neural pathways encoding closely related concepts are also activated. Images and ideas come to your mind. For instance, when someone says France, you may visualize the French flag, the Eiffel Tower, French wine, cheese, etc. This process continues further and further until the concepts you start thinking about are something else. If you previously connected these images with both France and Paris, the cue France will activate these additional related cues, so Eiffel Tower, wine, cheese, etc. And together they will generate more activation than France alone, which spreads to the connected memory trace, Paris. Conversely, if you studied the France-Paris pairing superficially, seeing the word France might not generate sufficient activation on its own to trigger the memory of Paris. The main implication of spreading activation is that in order to maximize the chances of remembering new concepts, you should try to make as many connections as possible between the new concepts and what you already know. If the target concept is connected to many other concepts, the chances of getting it activated and therefore retrieved are generally much higher than if it only has a few connections. So in summary, we recommend the following. First, when learning a new concept, connect it to the things that you already understand. Second, the more connections you can make between the new concept and old concepts, the more easily it will be remembered when you have to learn the new concept. Retrieval failure. What to do if you get stuck in an exam. Retrieval failure, or the failure to remember a memory trace, can have multiple reasons. One reason can be a lack of attention during study. Researchers have found that students who do a secondary task while studying underperform in a later test by as much as 30 to 50% compared to students who focus on one thing at a time. These results suggest that multitasking, doing many activities at once, is particularly harmful for learning. Another reason for retrieval failure is an insufficient number of activated cues. Cues are pieces of information which are connected to the target memory trace and which must be activated for the memory trace to be retrieved. Activation from the cue to target memory trace spreads faster if more cues are activated simultaneously. So as a demonstration, try the following little experiment. Think of the name of any supernatural creature. Now think of a supernatural creature that rhymes with post. Did you think of ghost on the first time or only after the second question? So the first question gave you only one cue, which led to multiple possible target memories. For instance, you may have thought of fairies or gnomes or angels or demons and the like. The second question gave you two cues. These two cues jointly generated enough activation for the word ghost that far surpassed the activation of any other concept. Therefore, the word ghost was retrieved. So consider another example from everyday life. You decide to return a book to the library while sitting at the kitchen table. Later, as you pass the library on your way home from school, you forgot to return the book. However, when you come back home and see the kitchen table, you suddenly remember. Memory traces are encoded together with the context presented at encoding. So although library would surely be a far more relevant contextual cue than the kitchen table, it was the kitchen table and not the library that was present during the encoding and thus encoded with that intention. So when you are informing an intention, it is very useful to imagine yourself doing the desired action in the desired context as vividly as possible. 
For instance, visualize yourself passing the library, entering the building, and returning the book. Focus on the details. Which objects, buildings are you most likely doing notice on your way around to the library? By doing this, you connect the cue of passing the library and all the surrounding objects to the intention. And when you later pass the library, it will automatically trigger that intention. If you are struggling to remember an important concept during your exam, you need to activate as many connected cues as possible. For instance, try visualizing yourself in the context of studying. Be as vivid as possible. Imagine yourself with an open textbook, taking notes, sitting at your desk. Simply imagining the context of encoding can be helpful to generate enough activation to successfully retrieve the memory trace. Also, try to remember the details of the context in which you studied the particular concept you're struggling with, such as what page it was in the book, what other concepts you studied before and after this concept. Note that for successful retrieval, it is important to activate the connected cues. Since our memories work like snapshots, everything that is present during encoding is encoded together during the memory trace. These cues can either be relevant, such as related concepts, or even completely irrelevant, such as the time of day or even what you had for lunch around the time of studying. In summary, we recommend the following. First, to better remember to do something in a particular place and time in the future, visualize yourself vividly doing it. For example, imagine yourself passing the library when returning the book. Visualize the details of the context where you need to remember the intention, objects, buildings, people. Second, if you cannot remember a particular concept that you studied during your exam, actively remember as many concepts as possible when you're related to this concept. Actively remember as many concepts as possible which you studied before and after this concept. Visualize yourself in the context of studying, so sitting in the desk, in your room, where you know you were learning it. Try to remember what time and where you were when you studied the concept, and what kind of mood you were in, and what happened on that day. Practice tests, the most powerful technique for boosting memory. Scientists have found that regardless of the type of test or exam you're going to take, you stand the best chance of succeeding if you revise with practice tests. As a demonstration, consider the following experiment. Students attended a 20-minute statistics lecture, which was divided into four equally long sessions. After each session, the first group took a practice test, without feedback. The second group had to re-study the lecture material, and a third group performed mental arithmetic. All students were assessed in with a final test after the lecture. So although the rereading group had more exposure to the material, their final test performance was substantially worse than that of the testing group, in this case, by 30%. Moreover, students who re-studied the lecture material did not perform any better than the students who did a completely unrelated arithmetic task. A wealth of research has shown that testing is more effective at improving retention and test performance than re-studying, even if no feedback is provided. This is called the testing effect. However, not all tests are created equal. You will greatly benefit from practice testing only if you revise with tests using a particular retrieval mode, recall. Recall is a way of retrieving a memory trace when you do not see the correct answer and you do not have any options to choose from. Example recall questions could be, what is the population of Canada? Or what is the German word for Monday? The opposite of recall is recognition, which is a way of retrieving a memory trace when you see the correct answer or a set of options that includes the correct answer. So an example of a recognition question could be, is the capital of Canada Ottawa or Montreal? Or is the German word for Monday Dienstag or Montag?
So regardless of how your knowledge is tested in the end, recall testing is vastly superior to all other learning methods based on recognition. One of the reasons for this is it automatically encourages deeper processing of the studying material. In the study just mentioned, the testing group took increasingly elaborate notes as the sessions progressed compared to other groups without being consciously aware of it. So the most important reason that recognition is easy for the brain is because it knows exactly which concept it must retrieve from memory. If you reread your notes, you're in fact asking your brain, do I know this? Does it sound familiar? If you've already started these notes at least once before, you're in effect telling your brain, I've seen this before, there's no need to make any further effort. In contrast, recall is effortful because the brain has to figure out which target memory is to be retrieved. If you test yourself with recall, so questions without hints or answers to choose from, your brain has to reconstruct the pathway from the question to the target concept. In this manner, the pathway is strengthened or new pathways are built, and as a result, the concept becomes more easily retrievable later. Note that recall has to be successful. Unsuccessful recall does not strengthen the memory trace. So the best time to revise concepts is therefore just before they're about to be forgotten, as mentioned before in the spacing effect. Virtually all methods commonly used in studying engage primarily on recognition processes such as reviewing or rereading, highlighting your text, or open book summarizing. It comes as no surprise then that these learning methods have been shown to have little or no utility in improving retrieval success and test performance. Other methods using deeper processing, such as self-explanation, are far more useful than restudying, but still not as effective as practice testing. However, it's not the case that rereading has no value whatsoever. Rereading is useful in as much as it is used together with practice testing. It's definitely a good idea to selectively restudy concepts which you cannot recall. Also, it is important to restudy material during practice testing as a form of feedback. Although practice testing without feedback is very effective on its own at improving memory, if errors go uncorrected, they will build up over time and become more and more firmly lodged in memory. So for this reason, feedback is an essential complement to practice testing that substantially enhances its effectiveness. It doesn't matter whether the feedback is immediate, straight after each problem, or delayed after the study session. Finally, do not forget that practical usage of your knowledge, such as doing real-world projects, also amounts to a form of practice testing and spaced repetition, where you have to regularly retrieve your knowledge and skills from memory. A fair amount of real-world practice can be superior to extensive theoretical study. So in summary, we recommend the following. First, avoid learning strategies based entirely on recognition. So reviewing, rereading of your notes, chapters, highlighting, summarizing with the book in front of you. Second, revise with practice tests questions to achieve the best result in your test and exam. So you can use free recall, which is where you have questions or tasks with no hints or options to choose from. You can practice recognition questions such as multiple choice only if your test will also be multiple choice. So you can see the section on transfer appropriate processing and limit this to about a quarter of your studying time. Selectively reread only the material that you cannot remember and get immediate or delayed feedback on your answers. So revise with practice tests, questions to achieve the best results in your tests and exam. So we've learned a lot of things. This has been a long episode and I'm going to quickly summarize the key methods for enhancing your long-term memory. Memory has three parts, encoding, storage, and retrieval. All three need to function successfully to remember what you need to. So to encode information better, you can process information more deeply, pay attention to the deeper meaning, make connections to what you already know, and paraphrase rather than take notes verbatim. 
Second, intention doesn't matter so much. Trying to remember more doesn't make a difference if you're using the same cognitive strategies. Third, match your practice and studying time to how you'll eventually use the information. Greater overlap means you'll remember more later. Fourth, if possible, align your state and context when you're encoding the information to when you need to remember it. And if this is impossible, study in more environments and situations to make your memories more robust. To store information better, you need to be aware of how you forget it. Here are the main possible causes of forgetting. Trace decay, and this is when memories get old or new knowledge overwrites old data. Refresh important information on a schedule so it doesn't get lost. Also interference, and this happens when a new memory blocks an old one, so you can't remember the Spanish word for water anymore because you learned the French one. Alternatively, it can happen when old memories make learning something new harder. How can you store memories better? First, get enough sleep. Short naps can recover energy, but longer naps, at least 16 minutes, can enter into the deep phases of sleep where memory consolidation happens. So ending your naps on a full sleep cycle can prevent grogginess. Of course, getting enough sleep at night is essential. Second, space out your practice. So done properly, you can get the same memory strength with about 20 to 30% less time by spacing properly. Finally, you need to retrieve the memories in the situations that need them. So how can you do this? First, more connections help. Memories are likely to be activated by spreading activation, so if you can think of related items, that can help you retrieve something difficult. Second, plan ahead and visualize the context you'll need to retrieve something in when you study. Finally, practice testing is the single most effective technique you can use. Practice recall, not just recognition. Harder recall creates stronger memories. I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the science behind memory and techniques on how you can learn and remember things better in your life. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, please consider rating my show. It helps other people find it. For more episodes like this, please visit my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. Thank you.